Before the 1972 NFL season, many experts had predicted a Super Bowl between Kansas City and Minnesota. Well, the Miami Dolphins had already beaten the Kansas City Chiefs on the road, and now here it was week three, and sure enough, they would face the Vikings in Minneapolis. This is Josh Lewin, and this is a look back at the Dolphins' perfect season some 50 years later. A few teams in the last five decades have come reasonably close. No one has actually stuck the landing. The Dolphins of 1971 had been good enough to go to a Super Bowl, but they lost it and lost it badly to Dallas, 24-3. The quarterback who suffered the indignity of that defeat was, of course, Bob Greasy, who would later easily make the Football Hall of Fame. But on that fateful evening in New Orleans in Super Bowl VI, he once got chased backwards for a 30-yard loss by the Cowboys' Bob Lilly. Bob Greasy wanted redemption. Certainly, Coach Don Shula wanted redemption. But perfection? That word wasn't getting batted around in the least, according to Greasy himself. Um, I don't think anybody ever talked about a perfect season. I don't remember anybody saying the words perfect season. Uh, Maybe the writers were, maybe the uh, broadcasters were, but we were always looking that we got to be careful because something might happen and we're, we might lose a ball game and we didn't want that to happen. So, um, I, I go back to this story I heard Larry Little, Larry Little tell about Kuchenberg and Langer in the uh, sauna uh, halfway through the season. I think we were dying to 10 and 0 or something like that. And they were talking and they said, um, I said, well, pretend it all. So you think we can go undefeated? No. No, we can't go undefeated. He said, nobody's ever done it? He says, we can't do it. He said, well, Langer, Langer said, well, who's, who's going to beat us? Well, the Jets. We had the Jets that week. The Jets, no, they can't beat us. Uh, that's, yeah, the Jets, they can't beat us. The next game was New England. The, the Patriots, they weren't that good back then. They they can't beat us, so then who else? Buffalo. We got the Buffalo Bills. No, they can't beat us. So, <laughs> so so they went through through all four of the teams we had left to play in the season. And says, well, we're ten and zero right now. We you know that, but they never they left it in the sauna. They didn't bring that out uh, until after the season's over with. We're talking about it years years in advance. Well, as the Dolphins prepared for this very tough test in Minnesota, everyone knew at the very least they'd be prepared, very prepared. Pro Bowl safety Dick Anderson put it like this. Well, I think you know, people don't realize the importance of the coaches and and how they called the plays. Both Coach Shula did more offense. He left everything else to to Bill Arnsberger on the defense, and he was a brilliant coach. We we never questioned what defense he called, and you know even in that game, you know if you don't make mistakes and you, and you have um, you know a job to do, that's what teamwork is all about. And you know I, I can't stress teamwork enough to say that we didn't have any prima donnas on our defense. Everybody had a job, and, and we, you know, we knew that what our own jobs were. Um, Jake Scott was the other safety, free safety, 
And, you know, we, we had some movements where, um, you know, on zone defense where we'd step, and Joe Namath to this day still cusses at me every time I see him. Because he said, you, you blank, blank guys were never where you were supposed to be. And I said, no, Joe, we knew where we were going, but you didn't. So, you know, I mean, it was those kinds of things as, as teamwork that, that really, and, and, the, and the defenses that Coach Arnsbarger called, uh, were really a reason for the success we had. And I think, you know, to this day, um, we've had the, probably the second best record uh, in professional football for 102 years. Anderson and the no-name Dolphins defense was going to have their chance to make plays on actual grass instead of synthetic turf this time. And for defensive lineman Vern Den Herder, this was also a chance to come as close to home in Sioux Center, Iowa, as he possibly could while playing pro football. Yeah, I had an opportunity for my family to be there and, and friends from Sioux Center. It's just a four-hour trip. And and I, I guess I felt pretty proud of myself that, that here I was um, playing and starting and, and going against the, the likes of, of Tarkington and Ron Yeri, who was the offensive tackle that I, I went against. And uh, I was just, uh, I was proud of that. And I think my, I think my folks were as well. I know, um, Howard Cosell was was there at the time, and my folks were at the the uh, they were they, they were at the motel that we were staying at, and we were getting into a, my family and I were getting into an elevator, and Howard Cosell was getting in with us, and he made he made the comment. He says, "Where can I find the Bonacani?" And my mom says. This isn't Bonacani. This is Vern Den Herder, <laughs> and uh, they were just uh, tickled pink, I think, to 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 be there and and uh, for my success. With temperatures in the fifties, it finally felt like football weather after a ninety-one degree opener in Kansas City and a humid slop fest back at the Orange Bowl in Miami. October first was sunny and crisp in Bloomington, Minnesota, and there was a field of genuine Midwestern grass. Seemed to set up well for the Miami offense, but on the other side of the football, the so-called purple people eaters, the best defense in the NFC. And sure enough, the Dolphins could not move the ball the first eight times they had it. They produced no points at all. This was one week after putting up 34 points on that home field wet carpet of the Orange Bowl. Both these teams liked to run the ball and control the clock, but remember, they also had superstar quarterbacks, Bob Greasy and Fran Tarkenton. Both were known for their creative scrambling as well as their actual arms. They had starred in college at Purdue and Georgia, respectively. Both were born on the date of February 3rd. Each would make the Hall of Fame, and between them, they would check the box as a pro bowler 17 times. Let's remember the early to mid-1970s defensive line for Minnesota was simply amazing with Carl Eller, Alan Page, Jim Marshall, and Gary Larson. Eller had been the NFL Defensive Player of the Year in 71. Page was even better than him. In fact, Page had become the first defensive player to be named league MVP. The only points of the game's first half came when Tarkenton executed play action on third and three from his own 44. John Gilliam was open. He took a 56-yard lob all the way for the score. Gilliam had also burned the Dolphins for a long touchdown 
in the final exhibition game the month before as well. Same opponent, same play, just three weeks prior in a two-point Miami win. Put a thumbtack in that, by the way, a two-point Miami win against the Vikings. Anyway, in the game's second half, things turned at least a little bit. Dick Anderson recovered a fumble at the Minnesota 17, but right after, Greasy was intercepted, looking to hit Paul Warfield right near those bright yellow goalposts in the end zone. He was undercut by Bobby Bryant. Shortly after that, well, Doug Swift intercepted Tarkenton, but the Purple People leaders stopped Miami cold yet again. Make no mistake, the no-name defense against the Purple People leaders became a brutal bar fight of a ball game. Larry Zonka would later recall it as the fiercest game in which he'd ever played. Linebacker Roy Winston delivered a clean, perfectly timed shoulder to his lower back on a short pass play, and Zonk said later on that's the hardest he ever took a hit on a football field anywhere. Jim Kick took a similar shot from a different linebacker, Wally Hilgenberg, on a very similar play. This was a game in which Tim Foley staggered off the field at one point, saying he heard chapel bells. Everyone was hitting everyone as though they were armed with a sack full of hammers. Finally, midway through the third, Miami got on the board and did so twice when the diminutive Armenian kicker Garo Yepremian hit field goals of 38 and 42 yards. That got the Dolphins back to within 7-6. Garo Yepremian, where do we even begin? His grandfather had come to Detroit from Armenia in 1913, saving up enough money from a factory job before returning home only to be murdered in cold blood by those in the Ottoman Empire. His parents were living in Cyprus as British subjects when Garrow himself was born in 1944. His parents had fled ethnic strife, moving to London, and he began playing semi-pro soccer while working in a clothing store. His older brother, meantime, had gotten a soccer scholarship to Indiana, and that gave Garrow the bright idea to become a professional American football kicker. He had noticed that the Detroit Lions' Wayne Walker had been just 8 of 22 that year and made only one field goal of more than 40 yards. Garrow, as a newfangled soccer-style kicker, did get himself a tryout with the Lions in 1966, and, well, a star was born. He was 142 pounds with a 28-inch waist, and he knew very little of the sport he was now playing. It was hard for bruising football players not to give him the business. They called him Keebler because of his resemblance to the cookie company's elfin mascot, but they also loved his positive energy and cockiness despite self-deprecating humor. He had showed up at training camp in 72 in Miami with a big bushy mustache. He looked like Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong. Eventually, he shaved that, but he kept the mutton chop sideburns, and his bald head made him look like he was 40 years old. Really, he was just 28. Backup quarterback Jim Delgazo had this to say about Keebler the Elf. Garrow was one of the all-time greatest characters in history, okay? He was my last roommate in training camp in 1976. Uh, For some reason, Shula put me and Garrow together. I'm not sure why. But what was good about that camp was, uh, and he was the greatest roommate ever. He had the room stocked like it was a 7-Eleven. We had cases of soda. I mean, he had more food in the room than you could believe. And his family was always there. He was very tight with his family. But but having Garrow as a roommate was great because the coaches, the position coaches, uh, for room check for the for the uh, curfew. So Shula was my position coach. He didn't check anybody, and Garrow didn't have a position coach because he was a kicker. 
So I was able to go home and sleep home. Uh, we lived uh, 20 minutes from training camp every single night. I would I would leave the camp at 11 at, at 10:45. I'd get in my car and drive home with an 11 o'clock curfew <laughs> and sleep with my wife every night because I didn't have a position coach. To, and and if anything happened, Garrow would call me. You know, and one night we did get checked, and Garrow called and said, "You better come back." And I came back, and it was nothing. But because I had him for a roommate my last camp in 76, um, I was able to go home and sleep every night in my own bed with my wife. So that was a great thing. Okay, so now we know about Mr. and Mrs. Dalgazo. But what about Garrow himself back in his swinging singles days of 72? Garrow was the greatest. I mean, Garrow, believe me, he was a ladies' man before he met his wife. He, He had a lot of girlfriends. He was smooth. But I remember when he met Maritza, they had one date and he came in the locker room and said, I just met my future wife. I swear to God, he came in the locker room and announced he met his future wife after one date and they were married a couple of months later and had a tremendous life together. He was a great guy. We miss him. Through it all, Aguero was on the football field, was supremely talented. He ended up 17 of 18 on field goals of 40 yards or less than 72. He had 24 field goals overall in the regular season. His long snapper was Howard Kindig. Garrett was, Garrett was a, uh, 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 probably, I would say from 45 yards in, as, as good a kicker as ever lived. He was, I mean, he was right on. And I used to watch him sometimes, and they'd have all these different kickers come in, you know, during the, the preseason. And, you know, always had some kicker challenging him, this, that, and the other. And they always practiced by themselves, the kickers did. And so you see, watch Gary over, he played head games with them. Like they were all trying to hit it through the uprights, and Gary would, would kick it about two yards to the left, then two yards to the right, and, you know, hit it underneath the crossbars. He did that on purpose, just like hitting the golf ball, you know. He was, and when it comes down to kicking, they had to do it for when, you know, the coaches were watching them and taking all this into consideration and filming it. Gerald hit him. <laughs> he wore him out, man. He hit dead solid every time. But he always played hit games with the guys who come in. Well, Gerald got it done in this game. Thanks to the field goal kicker, midway through the third quarter, it was now 7-6 Minnesota. And then Tarkenton led a greasy-like drive for the home team. 14-play, 80-yard drive as the clock ran out on that third quarter. Minnesota had fourth down only six inches from the goal line when fourth-quarter play got going. Bill Brown, the fullback, got those six inches plunging over the middle. Minnesota led 14-6. And remember, there were no two-point conversions then, so the Finns would need not one score, but two. Down eight points with 11 minutes left is when the Dolphins began their steady crawl towards a comeback. Actually, a rare 15-yard penalty on Larry Little for holding had them facing a hopeless third and 25 from their own 34. But then Marlon Briscoe got the call to do something a bit different a flanker reverse pass that he could not wait to execute. Marlon was a former quarterback, and he'd been hoping Coach Shula would call this play all day. Jim Mandich, the young tight end, took the pass down to the opposing 44. Briscoe had eluded two all-time great defensive ends to make it even happen. He had spun around, he had thrown back across his body to a receiver who had been covered, but came back to the spot. Big play by the long-haired Mandich, who had been a second-round pick three years prior from the University of Michigan, Between he and Marv Fleming, the Dolphins had two real weapons for Bob Greasy, something Bob Greasy appreciated. The tight ends, Marv Fleming was a great blocking tight end. We got him from Green Bay, and uh, 
uh, you asked Zonka, Pick, and Mercury Morris uh, about our running game, and uh, we had the best blocking tight end in the league, and that was Mark. Uh, Mandage was just the opposite. He was a, a great receiver and not much of a blocking tight end. Marv, on the other hand, could catch, catch. He wasn't the fastest guy. Uh, like I said, he could block like mad, uh, and he could catch some balls. But knowing their their strengths and their weaknesses, um, I, I knew that when when Schuttle would send one guy in or one guy out, I was calling the plays back then. I was the offensive coordinator, so I would I, I would adjust the offensive play calling to whether Marv was in there or whether uh, Mandage was in there. But Mandage was a good receiver, and Marv was uh, the the best blocking tight end uh, that, that was ever played in the uh, NFL. Well, Mandage is the one with the all-important catch during this Marlin the Magician moment, but that play, great as it was, had still left the Dolphins three yards short of a critical first down. A field goal attempt would come from 51 yards. Gary Apremian had never made a field goal over 50 in a game that actually mattered, and now he was being asked to hit one from 51. Garrow swung that left foot, the football cleared the crossbar, and it was indeed now 14-9. to No onside kick would follow. Coach Shula trusted his defense, so Garrow kicked it deep, and the no-name defense held, Miami taking over at its own 41. Two minutes, 11 seconds remaining on that old-fashioned scoreboard clock in Bloomington. How would Bob Greasy get the ball where it needed to get? 59 yards were needed. Would it be one of the three-star running backs? Well, on this day, that was proving to be an uphill climb in wet cement. Zonka had to work his tail off for 66 yards total on this day. Mercury Morris was held to 28 and Jim kicked to 21. All those guys getting it done with spit and vinegar as opposed to gasoline and motor oil against that amazing Vikings D. Greasy had those aforementioned tight ends, Mandich and Fleming. He had a star wideout in Paul Warfield, but... Turns out the club he brought out of his golf bag was a soft-spoken Texan by the name of Howard Twilley. Twilley had always been a tremendous blocker. He was precise in his patterns, had a great pair of hands. Those were the things that helped people forget he stood only 5'10". Greasy and Twilley were also close friends, and so were their wives. There was a rapport well-established, and that's the field that Greasy decided to plow those final 2 minutes and 11 seconds. The bottom line with Twilley is Twilly always seemed to get open, and indeed he would deliver the mail on this final game-saving drive. The Dolphins moved to the Minnesota 28 as Twilly got open, and as the run game and slants to Warfield were still being kept under wraps, Twilly shook free one last time. He took a perfect pass right in the numbers. He cut through the infield dirt of the Minnesota Twins, and he finally got dragged down at the three-yard line with one minute showing on the clock. That baseball infield with dirt all over everybody's uniforms at this point. Greasy, from in close, had so many options. He was a masterful play caller whose fun in games was to rush his team into the huddle just so he could then stand back and think up the play like a professor puffing on some invisible pipe. Well, the professor, some 50 years later, recalled what he came up with that fateful afternoon. Yeah, that that play I remember probably probably better than most plays we ran that year because that was the closest 
that we came that year to be in, uh, beaten. Minnesota up there in their place. Um, we played them, I think, the following year or two years uh, later in the, um, I guess it was the next year. We played them two years later in the Super Bowl. And, um, yeah, they were tough. They were tough against the run. They were tough against the pass. Uh, late in the game, we get down inside the 10-yard line. And I know that they first down and five on the five or whatever it is. And I know they think that we're going to run Mazanka because we always run Mazanka when we get inside the five-yard line. Um, so I say, all right, let's, let's call Brown right near close. 119 split delay. Delay is bandage over on the left side. He's going to fake, block, and then release in the middle of the end zone. And I fake the ball to Zaka. The line blocks like it's a running play. And sure enough, they, they send 11 guys to stop the run. And Mandy's just sitting there waiting for the ball. And I get it to him. And yeah, that, that game. That team that day was the closest we ever came that year to losing a ball game. Roy Winston was a hard-charging linebacker who had almost gotten to Greasy before he got his pass away, but Winston couldn't touch Greasy the way he had all but splattered Zonka's kidneys across the playing field earlier that day. It was a touchdown, and with the extra point, the Dolphins had their 16-14 lead and eventually their third win of the young season. The no-name defense had gotten it done. They had sacked Tarkenton five times, intercepted him three times. It was the worst game Tarkenton would end up having all year. Dick Anderson and Jake Scott were pivotal in that secondary, the best safety tandem in the league. And yes, they were both a little taller than their hair, so to speak. Neither really looked the part, since there was such little hair to actually part. But man, were they athletic. And boy, could they play. Anderson ran his businesses off the field. Scott ran his mouth off and on the field. Together, those guys were amazing. And here's Dick Anderson now. On the field, we played as a team. We trusted each other. Uh, Jake was a great free safety. I mean, I don't know if you can get a a better one. Um, But again, Coach Arnsbarger called the defense and we had to execute. And it doesn't matter what what you're doing, we didn't have players that argued with each other. We, We you know, believed in what the coaches were doing, and that was all very positive. And I think that's probably the most important thing. Uh, the other, you know, you looking back, uh, the difference between football today and, and, and in those days is the team owned you, and there was no free agency. And so today, I don't know if I can name five players on the Miami Dolphins because they come and go so much. Well, football is a game of teamwork, and if, and if you don't have players – that understand that, and we had players that, that um, did what they were supposed to do, and we never really argued with each other. Uh, and those are all things that, you know, has changed in the game because, you know, players move from team to team to team to team, and we didn't do that. So, um, you know, one, we had the, the great coaches, and two, we played as a team, and, and that makes a, a huge difference. Together, Anderson and Scott were the linchpins of that defensive secondary, and some 50 years later, Anderson would stand in his insurance offices near the University of Miami 
He looked longingly at a framed picture of that defense in his hallway that included underrated players like Mike Colon and Doug Swift, and he said this. was really um, part of the success that, that um, Bill Arnsbarger had in calling the correct defense and, and then us not making mistakes. Well, according to defensive coordinator Bill Arnsbarger, he counted just 13 mental mistakes all year made by that no-name defense in 17 games. 24 total players, 17 games, 13 mistakes. Not perfect, but pretty darn close. And speaking of perfect, here it was week three, and the Dolphins were now the only remaining undefeated team in the National Football League. Seriously, all the other teams... 23 of the 24 were either 0-3, 1-2, or 2-1, with Washington having gotten stunned by the lowly Patriots in New England and Dallas losing in Green Bay. 3-0 meant top of the NFL mountain, and it was only the 1st of October. Surely, with every other team already having at least one loss, the Dolphins would get theirs later in October, or November, or December, or January. Right? Right? Now, all we can say is stay tuned. Next week, there'll be a game against Joe Namath and the Jets and a chance to get to 4-0 and take an early two-game lead in the division. This is Josh Lewin. Hope you're enjoying our trip down memory lane, the perfect season of 1972.